0: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B A D L A N D S F O O D.com slash obscura. As far as hot topics and current affairs go, the way in which our children's lives today are impacted by the internet, and social media in particular, is one that we see on a regular rotation. Internet parenting discussion forums dedicated to the issue of how to protect our children from negative influences at school and online have become the norm. We are now all too aware of the need to monitor the unprecedented access our children and teenagers have to all manner of content. Minimizing their exposure to material that provides a channel for bullying is, for some parents, an ongoing battle. digital age, monitoring the online content that our children are accessing and consuming adds a further layer of complexity. Most parents do their best to educate their kids and maintain open communication about the pitfalls of the online world and how to deal with it. But kids are tech-savvy, naturally curious, and often defiant. Prior to the advent of social media, some degree of comfort and protection existed for kids who were being bullied. By being able to walk outside the school gate or step off the bus at the end of the day. For those children and teens who had a stable and loving home life, this could offer some respite from the jeers, cruel practical jokes, and public humiliation dished out by their peers. Nowadays, the rise of numerous social media platforms means there is no escape and no reprieve from bullying. It's now as easy as the click of a button for bullies, to launch and maintain relentless hate campaigns that make their targets feel unsafe in every aspect of their lives. Thankfully, many schools today have zero-tolerance anti-bullying policies, encouraging regular conversations with our kids about inclusivity. Respect and kindness also helps them speak up early on when they recognize bullying behavior. But sometimes, even the best of intentions can prevent the unthinkable from happening. In August 2006, Patrick and Geraldine Criegel traveled from their home in Ireland to Russia, but this was no usual European summer holiday. Only weeks earlier, French-born Patrick and his wife had finally been able to share their exciting news with their family and close friends. They would be adopting their first child, Anastasia. The two-and-a-half-year-old was born on February 18, 2014, in Novokuznetsk. In Siberia, in eastern Russia, but had been placed in an orphanage. When Patrick and Geraldine adopted their daughter, they decided to keep her name, but soon, everyone around her abbreviated it to Anna. The family settled in an upper middle class housing estate in the town of Leekslip, in County Kildare, west of Dublin. Although Anna's parents had no cultural or family links to Russia, they felt it was important that their daughter have a strong sense of cultural identity. They made a point of ensuring that Anna maintained connections with her native Russian culture and with her birth family. Anna had two younger sisters in Russia whom she had never met, but as she got older, she started to write to them. Anna felt lucky that she got to celebrate two special days for herself every year. In addition to her birthday, she always commemorated the anniversary of her adoption on August 10th. Anna was a spirited, sweet-natured, and happy child who loved spending time with her large extended family, especially her cousins and grandparents. As a youngster, she developed a love of the water, and it was only a matter of time before her family noticed that she was a talented swimmer. Along with her parents and her younger brother, Anna spent every summer at the family's French holiday home in sunny Ancy, and every year, she looked forward to dyeing her hair a vibrant color in preparation for the special occasion. Despite the warm and loving home environment Patrick and Geraldine provided, things weren't always easy for Anna. She had some health issues, including a vision impairment, which would later require her to wear contact lenses. When she was only five years old, there was a more serious complication. Anna had a tumor removed from her right ear, but this procedure significantly affected her hearing on the same side. Learning difficulties arising from an issue with Anna's short term memory also presented a challenge when it came to retaining information at school. But despite her health struggles, Anna found joy in her love of dance, singing, and gymnastics. Her mother, Geraldine, later fondly recalled Anna spending hours at home practicing routines for her dance class. In front of the mirror, Anna had more creative goals. She hoped to expand her talent to learning the guitar and even had a dream to build a hotel called the Anna Love Hotel. Her design included a cottage for her family on the premises, so she could visit whenever they wanted. This was just one example of how much Anna showed she dearly loved her family, and they in turn ensured she knew how much she, too, was loved. When it came to her schooling, Anna had always struggled just a little more than the other students, both academically and socially. She had trouble being accepted by her peers, and was often excluded from their activities. Her father Patrick told RTE News that his daughter was often disappointed by others' reactions to her attempts to make friends, which sometimes resulted in her saying the wrong thing. As Anna came to the end of her primary school years, concerns were raised by school staff that Anna's natural naivety left her vulnerable to bullies who could take advantage of her kind of nature and desire for friendship. Despite this, Hanna wasn't backwards and coming forwards when it came to volunteering for school activities. According to the Irish Times, she participated in school concerts and even participated in a charity fundraiser by modeling for a fashion show organized by older students. Although she had clear initiative and natural curiosity in wanting to establish a social circle, friends were still lacking in Hanna's life. She enjoyed going out walking, listening to music on her signature bright blue and white headphones, but no friends ever joined her. She always went out walking alone. Like many teens, Anna was active across various social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. But YouTube was by far and away her favorite. About 100 subscribers followed Anna's channel, which featured videos she'd made about the things the typical teen girl are into. Makeup, dancing, and fashion. Unfortunately, bullies started targeting Anna in the summer holidays after she finished sixth grade. Messages in her social media inboxes took on an explicitly sexual tone. Standing at 5'8'' by age 13 and looking much older than her peers, she was mocked about her height and the fact she was adopted. Comments on her YouTube channel became threatening. Despite the online bullying, Anna was still very much looking forward to starting the next phase of her schooling at the Confi Community College. Anna was still very much looking forward to starting the next phase of her schooling at Confi Community College. But Geraldine and Matrigue had fears about how their daughter would fare socially in the dog-eat-dog world of high school. So much so, that the concerned parents met with the school principal at the commencement of the school year. They wanted to ensure teachers were aware of the online bullying already targeting Anna and her vulnerability to the students who wished her harm. At the start of high school, Anna was asked in class to write a paragraph about her hopes for the future. She wrote, quote, I hoped I would get into secondary school, and I did. That is one goal down. My second hope is to go to Paris University, like my dad, the hardest one to get into. When I come home from Paris, I would like to get a dog. I would like to get married, too. Not sure I want any babies. Well, not yet anyway. I hope that I have a good life. I hope everyone I meet will be nice. Sadly, contrary to the hopes of both Anna and her parents, the bullying not only continued, but got worse, aside from one friend, with whom Anna spent time outside school. She continued to struggle to make friends. Her mother Geraldine later told the Irish Times, quote, "People didn't understand her. She was unique and full of fun. She couldn't hate anyone, even though some of the people were bullying her. She was disappointed with people. That happened quite regularly." In response to the relentless bullying, something had to give, and it was Anna's behavior. A fight with another girl at school saw her suspended, which was extremely out of character for the usually well-behaved and kind-hearted teen. In another instance, she painted a black eye onto her face. Geraldine didn't interpret this as an act of teenage rebellion or defiance. Instead, she saw it as an outward expression of how isolated and miserable Anna felt over being excluded by her peers. In late 2017, there were even concerns that Anna had self-harmed But as the injury in question on her arm was a minor scratch, Geraldine formed the view that Anna was perhaps copying something she'd heard about in a similar incident. And then something curious happened that no one could explain. Anna's parents discovered that their daughter had created fake social media accounts, but instead of using the accounts to escape the online bullying via her main social media profiles, Anna was in fact using the new profiles to send threatening messages to herself Geraldine decided to implement some new rules to monitor the situation. Anna had to provide her mother with all her social media passwords, as well as hand over her phone and iPad every night. After Anna was in bed, Geraldine would scroll through her daughter's accounts and inboxes. What she found wasn't exactly reassuring. On Anna's YouTube channel, one comment told Anna to quote, "...go die." While another user commented that Anna would be executed. Feeling like they were running out of options, Geraldine and Patrick sought assistance for Anna through local youth services. The counseling offered seemed to help Anna, but even though it was only a short walk home after her sessions, she still experienced severe anxiety at the thought of being waylaid on the way back by bullies. Still, by 2018, Anna had two special events to look forward to. One was the family's annual summer trip to France, the other was the opportunity for Anna to finally meet her two younger sisters from her birth family for the first time. But despite having these special occasions on the horizon, and the progress Anna was making in counseling, Geraldine remained concerned about what her daughter was exposed to online. The Irish Independent reported that in May 2018, Geraldine got an unpleasant surprise, when, in the course of checking Anna's phone, she came across a photo of Anna tied to a chair with duct tape and blindfolded. To Anna, the photo was no big deal. She explained it away by saying that the picture was taken as a part of a prank with a friend to see if a boy whom they wanted to see the photo would come and rescue Anna. Geraldine appreciated that Anna was just trying to fit in, but the explanation didn't exactly fill Geraldine with confidence that her daughter wasn't being led astray and negatively influenced by her peers. On the spring morning of May 14, 2018, Geraldine kissed Anna goodbye before she headed off to catch the train to work in Dublin City. Anna got herself ready for school, said goodbye to her father, and left the house not long after. Patrick had previously worked as a professor, but as he was now retired, he now spent the day at home. That afternoon, Anna had a counseling appointment in Leakslip, so she left school around lunchtime to head home to grab a bite to eat. Before walking to her appointment, after the session was finished, Anna walked home arriving at around 4 pm and greeting her father anna went up to her room where she tried to call geraldine but there was no answer just before 5 pm the doorbell rang patrick opened the door to see a young teenage boy who asked to see anna patrick couldn't recall having seen the boy before and at first anna seemed slightly puzzled as to why he'd come to her house they weren't friends more acquaintances but she went to see what he wanted after a few minutes chatting with the boy Anna dashed upstairs to get her black and white hoodie. She told her father that she was heading out, but wouldn't be gone too long. Her father reminded her that she had to study that evening. As her school exams were coming up, Patrick hadn't overheard the details of the conversation, but there didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary about the unannounced visit. Before Patrick could think to ask Anna where she was going, and before she could mention it herself, she flashed him a brilliant smile and bounded out the door Patrick watched his daughter walk with the boy who was carrying a backpack. The pair headed towards St. Catharines Park, on the border of Leakslip, and the town of Lucan, in nearby county Dublin. It didn't look like they were chatting, but Anna had seemed perfectly happy when she left. Patrick was sure he'd hear later on all about what she'd got up to. Around this time, Geraldine was heading back home to Leakslip. She returned Anna's call from an hour earlier, but it went to voicemail when Geraldine arrived home at 5.20 p.m. She was immediately concerned that Patrick told her that Anna had gone out with the unfamiliar teenage boy. Like Patrick, Geraldine had never seen or spoken to the boy before, as Anna didn't have any close friends. Nobody ever phoned their house asking to speak to her, let alone calling around to the house asking to see her, which was extremely unusual. At 5:30 p.m., Geraldine texted Anna, saying, quote, home now. But there was no response. It was simply unheard of for Anna to ignore texts. When a further text from Geraldine threatening to call the police went unanswered, she set out on foot for St. Catherine's Park, but Anna was nowhere to be seen. After dinner, Geraldine headed out again, this time in the car. But again, it was as if Anna had disappeared into thin air. Upon returning home, Geraldine and Patrick tried to find more details about the identity of the boy through Facebook, but were unsuccessful. Around 9 p.m., the concerned parents visited Leakslip Police Station to report Anna missing after explaining their efforts to identify the boy who'd called around for her earlier. That evening, police tracked the teen down and visited him at home. The boy told police that he and Anna had indeed gone to St. Catherine's Park where they went for a walk, but he went home around 5 40 p.m., leaving Anna at the park, which is the last time he saw her. The following day, the Crayagels, along with their friends and family, combed the leak slip in Luke in areas to see if anyone in the surrounding neighborhoods had spotted Anna. Police meanwhile had decided to pay another visit to the boy who had walked with Anna to the park. This time the boy provided more detail. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, You slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's Journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Listener, from this stage onwards in our story, for reasons which will become apparent, the boy who went to the park with Anna will be referred to as he was by police in the media as Boy B. Boy B told officers that he'd visited Anna's house under the instruction of a friend known as Boy A. Boy B explained that Boy A had asked to bring Anna to St. Catherine's Park so they could chat about a potential relationship. Boy B explained that Anna had a crush on Boy A, who also knew about Anna's feelings, but that he wanted to meet face to face to tell her it wasn't going anywhere. Boy B now told police... That he and Anna met up with Boy A in the park, and that Boy B then went home, leaving Anna and Boy A together. Police decided to take Boy B to the park to allow him to retrace the exact routes he took on the day before. By now, Anna's image was being flashed across TV screens and newspapers nationally in a public appeal for information. Many well-meaning members of the public contacted police, but this failed to yield any strong leads by the afternoon, with still no sign of Anna police took both Boy B and Boy A back to St. Catherine's Park. This was partly in the hope that, in each other's company, the boy's memories would be jogged, and some details clarified. On this trip to the park, police immediately noticed some issues of concern. Boy A was limping due to an injured leg. Boy B also led police to a different route, into the park compared to the one he'd showed them the first time. Then, when the boy arrived near the park's BMX track, Police noticed them exchange a momentary, yet inexplicable glance, as if they both knew something the police didn't. With time running out to find Anna, police decided to take formal police statements from the boys separately in the presence of their parents. Boy B maintained his account. Boy A said he'd arranged to meet Boy B in the park, and when he arrived, both Anna and Boy B were already there. Boy A explained that he didn't know Anna that well, so tried to break the news to her gently about there being no chance of a relationship he claimed that anna looked sad and annoyed but didn't say anything and just walked away leaving him alone as boy b had also gone home by now boy a then told police that as he walked home by himself he was set upon by two men who forced him to the ground kicking and punching him boy a told the police that he managed to get to his feet where he then kicked one of the assailants in the head this frightened both men so much that they ran off it was an unlikely story from a police perspective, but officers did their due diligence and commenced an investigation into the alleged assault. They seized the clothes and boots Boyer had been wearing at the time he claimed he was attacked, as well as his phone. Officers also spoke to people who had been in the park that evening and obtained CCTV footage near the site of the alleged attack. Search efforts ramped up on May 16th, in addition to scores of local volunteers Specialist police teams and civil defense were now scouring the Lucan and Leek Slip areas, as well as the River Liffey, in their search for Anna. Attempts were also made to try and trace the last known location of Anna's mobile phone. For her parents, the uncertainty about where she could be was overwhelming. Only the day before Anna disappeared, she and Geraldine had spent quality time together, doing something Anna loved, cuddling up to watch a movie. This was followed by a family visit in the afternoon, during which time Hannah enjoyed making a YouTube video with her cousin. Everything had seemed totally normal, and Anna had seemed perfectly happy. Now she was nowhere to be found. A day later, on May 17th, one particular police search team was exploring a field on the eastern boundary of St. Catherine's Park. Thrashing through the thick foliage wasn't easy work. Dense shrubbery and overgrown underbrush was only difficult to penetrate, but potentially concealed vital clues that police couldn't afford to miss. As the search team made their way to the end of the field, less than a kilometer from St. Catherine's Park, they could see it open up towards the rear of 100 acres of farmland and outbuildings. These were attached to a large two-story abandoned property known as Glenwood House. The house, built around 1800, is located in an area near the town of Lucan, known as Cold Blow, a six-minute drive west of Leakslip. The property had been vacant since the late 20th century and despite its classification as a protected structure, had fallen into a state of disrepair. Taking on a foreboding appearance, sections of the roof had collapsed. Fire had scorched parts of the interior, walls were scrawled in graffiti courtesy of vandals, and the floor covered with refuse and rotting timber. Naturally, while the house remained vacant pending a development application to convert it into an aged care facility, it became a popular hangout for teenagers. As the search team entered the property, their eyes adjusted to the darkness due to the boarded up windows devoid of glass. Towards the front of the house, one officer entered a room where the only thing immediately visible was a small shaft of light. It was shining through a crude hole, punched through one of the boards covering the window. But then the officer spotted a figure on the floor, like a mannequin, or as he later described it, quote, Something terrible. It wasn't a mannequin. It was Anna. Who was naked apart from her socks her dark matted hair covering her face her clothing lay scattered around the room and among smashed pieces of her phone and her false nails which had been ripped off in a vicious struggle hannah's black strappy tank top was torn and stretched according to irish online news source the journal.ie hannah's bra had been ripped apart from the front and the securing hooks and eyes were bent indicating the garment had been torn from her body. Wrapped around her neck was a long piece of blue insulation tape. Anna had maneuvered three of her fingers underneath the tape, as if in an attempt to remove it. Her blood was on the walls and covered the floor. Laying near Anna's body were a bloodied length of wood about a meter long, as well as a concrete block, stained with her blood and strands of her hair stuck to the surface. As the shocking news broke that Anna had been found only three kilometers from her home, the public was left reeling that such a thing could happen to someone so vulnerable. Hannah had sustained injuries to 60 separate parts of her body, including significant cuts and bruising to her head, face, and neck. Her right eye socket, upper jaw, and cheekbone were fractured, and her lips were swollen. Abrasions, scratches, and bruises were evident on her shoulders, torso, arms, and legs. She had initially been struck with the length of wood after walking into the room. After collapsing to the floor, her neck had been compressed. She was struck again on the right and rear sides of her head by a blunt object, a total of four times. A pool of blood on the carpet indicated that Anna's body had lay near the doorway for a period before being dragged towards the rear of the room. She was then sexually assaulted by an indeterminable body part or object. The autopsy revealed that Anna had died as a result of extensive blunt force injuries to her head and neck, most likely before 5.40pm the day she went missing. Unusually, The only fingerprints and blood were covered from the crime scene, belonged to Anna, but semen stains on her tank top quickly gave police the forensic lead they needed, and they turned their attention back to Boy A and Boy B. Police gathered and viewed over 700 hours of both public and private CCTV footage, taken from various sources on the day Anna went missing. These included St. Catherine's Park, residences in the area, and public transport. What it revealed was telling. At 4.57 p.m. on May 14th, CCTV in the vicinity of the Courtyard Lane near St. Catharines Park recorded a teenage boy wearing a backpack. At 5.01 p.m., Anna was captured by cameras as she walked behind Boy B in the direction of the park. At 5.14 p.m., two people were seen on CCTV near the BMX track in the park. Police couldn't be sure, but the figures appeared to be Anna and Boy B walking towards Glenwood House. Just over half an hour later, at 5.49pm, the same camera captured Boy B walking alone through the park. At 6.03pm, Boy A was spotted in footage, again from the courtyard lane, walking back towards where he entered the park just over an hour earlier. Police inquiries conducted in the area around the park resulted in confirmed sightings of Anna, Boy A, and Boy B. At different points in the afternoon, one witness told investigators that around 5.08pm, they saw a teenaged boy who was found to match boy b's description climbing into a field on the lucan side of st catherine's park the boy was headed straight for glenwood house around five minutes later another witness saw anna and boy b both in an upbeat mood walking towards the abandoned property meanwhile the clothing and footwear worn by boy a on the day Anna went missing had been tested for traces of foreign blood or dna when the results came back Nine samples taken from Boye's boots were a match to Anna's blood. Police were already suspicious of the boys' accounts of their movements, and the forensic evidence now proved that Boye was far more involved than he'd led police to believe. If he wasn't directly involved in attacking Anna, his boots placed him directly at the crime scene soon after she'd died. Police knew that if the boys were responsible or involved in Anna's murder anyway, the way they were questioned and dealt with by law enforcement had to be beyond reproach. This was vital, not only to demonstrate that police conducted the investigation of the juvenile suspects fairly, but to ensure that any potential conviction would be upheld in the event guilt was proven. A week after Anna was found dead, police had to warrant to arrest both boys. On May 24th, the teens were interviewed at separate police stations. Again in the presence of their parents, boy A gave an account consistent with that of boy B. He said he had indeed met up with Anna in the park. But left there and didn't see her again, even suggesting that the two grainy figures on the CCTV footage were perhaps the assailants who had assaulted him. When investigators confronted Boye with the news that Anna's blood was found on his boots, the boy blanched. He responded that police must be joking. After taking a brief break for Boye to gather his composure, detectives continued to probe him for an explanation. Boye flatly denied being at Glenwood House in the room where Anna's body was found or owning any insulation tape similar to what was found wrapped around on his neck. It soon became clear that investigators weren't going to get much further with Boy A. Boy B was simultaneously being interviewed by detectives. By now, police knew that the CCTV footage they obtained conflicted with Boy B's account. It didn't tally with the story of Boy B taking on it to meet Boy A in the park, and then going home, leaving them together. Despite being presented with this evidence, Boy B maintained he was telling the truth. While the interviews continued, police conducted covert searches of both boys' homes. What they found didn't do much to eliminate either boys as suspects. In the wardrobe of Boy A's bedroom, officers discovered a backpack containing a sinister-looking homemade mask. In the image of a zombie face, the mask had eye holes and was designed to only cover up the top of the face, but included jagged red teeth, giving it a ghoulish appearance. The backpack also contained knee pads, shin guards, a scarf, and black gloves. The Journal.ie reported that police had also found an iPad, an iPhone, and a copybook containing various pictures and instructions for making a mask, similar to the one found in the backpack. According to the Irish Independent, the phone search history revealed a result for, quote, "...abandoned places in Lucan." Police also found a questionnaire completed by Boy A for a school project, which included the statement, quote, I like to hang out in abandoned places. A search of Boy B's bedroom revealed a number of electronic devices, including an iPad, mobile phones, a SIM card, PlayStation console, and a USB stick. Investigators also seized a pocket knife, multiple pairs of sneakers, two backpacks, and as reported by the Journal.ie, a roll of blue insulation tape from the shed attached to Boy B's house. When the detectives presented Boy B with a photograph of the tape found around Anna's neck at the crime scene, it was his turn to be shocked. The length of tape had come from the same roll found in the shed at Boy B's house, the very same roll that Boy B said he'd not long ago lent to Boy A. Boy B's account was slowly but surely coming undone, despite police asking him to take them through his story again. Boy B was adamant that he didn't know anything about what happened to Anna. Boy B's interview was into a second day when investigators informed him that he was seen by a witness on the afternoon in question, walking towards Glenwood House. Boy B stuck to his story, but the pressure of trying to stay one step ahead of the police, who periodically presented new information that conflicted with his version of events, took its toll. He now told police he wanted to change his statement. Boy B's new account included an omission he'd lied previously there was also a new level of detail that detectives knew was gradually edging closer to the truth hopefully it could prove to be the key to unlock further information from boy a who was still being uncooperative boy b now told detectives that after he and anna met boy a near the bmx track he saw the pair headed inside glenwood house As investigators got Boy B to repeat his story multiple times from start to finish and back again, they pulled him up on each new detail he provided. By the time Boy B had finished being interviewed, the chronology of events played out as follows. Boy B stated that not long after Boy A and Anna entered Glenwood House, he heard her scream. Boy B followed the parents' side, but Boy A instructed him to leave. Instead of going home, Boy B claimed he wandered around the abandoned property until he heard a shuffling sound from one of the rooms. This was the front room where Anna's body was found, later known as Room 1. Boy B stated he ran into the room in time to see Boy A flip Anna onto the ground. Boy B claimed that Boy A then started choking Anna and yanking her clothes off her. Anna was terrified and crying, begging Boy A to stop. The next thing Boy B knew, Boy A was staring at him with a blank look and instructing him again to leave. Boy B told police that. Gripped by fear, he turned and ran from the house. While police were extremely doubtful that Boy B's fresh claims were 100% accurate, the new information was sent to detectives across town in the hope it would provide the leverage needed in the inquiries with Boy A. But Boy A was unconcerned about the new and incriminating developments. He wouldn't budge, simply stating that Boy B was a liar. By this stage, Forensic testing on Boye's backpack and items inside, which police would go on to refer to as the murder kid, revealed that the backpack, the mask, knee pads, and gloves all had traces of Anna's blood. Boye's DNA was found not only on the mask, but on a swab taken from Anna's neck and on the insulation tape. The imprints of Boye's boots were also found to be similar to a shoe print on the hoodie Anna took with her on the day she went missing. But that's it for this episode. Turn in next time for part two of Blank Label. But for now, keep it black.